Hello, it is Thursday, the 25th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-ho. President Yoon Sung-yeol has pledged to make sweeping improvements to public transit in the Seoul metro area and has also announced plans for a high-speed commuter train. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Coming up on Weekly Take, we discuss the move by Scandinavian countries to stop foreign adoptions, including from Korea, and Trump's continuing march towards the Republican nomination for president. And on Explore Korea, we discover the sculptor-slash-painter Lee Jung-bae and his latest solo exhibition here in Seoul. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. President Yoon Sung-yeol on Thursday vowed to revamp public transit in the Seoul metropolitan area by announcing a plan for a high-speed commuter train to help ease a chronic congestion between the capital and satellite cities. Our KBS World Radio news editor Gui Jin joins us in the studio now to bring us the details of the plans as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, Jang. Okay, before we get to that story, we have some late breaking news, some concerning breaking news. Ruling People Power Party lawmaker Bae Jin is being treated in hospital after she was attacked by an unidentified man on the street on Thursday. Details are still coming in. But Hee what do we know at this point? Well, the former network news anchor turned lawmaker was struck in the head by what is presumed to be a stone or a blunt instrument while walking down a street in Seoul's Gangnam district at around 5.20pm. She was transported to Sunchanyang University Seoul Hospital after suffering bleeding wounds. Her injuries are said to be non-life-threatening. Bear's aides told Seoul-based Yonhap news agency that the lawmaker's attacker had asked other people on the street which person was there before he carried out the assault. The, the attacker was arrested on site by a police and was taken to the Seoul Gangnam police station. Yes, this is still a developing situation, so we'll see uh, what happens. But this comes uh, less than a month after, of course, uh, the DP chairman Lee Jae-myung was attacked uh, by a, a man uh, with a knife as well. So this is another concerning uh, attack in the political arena. Indeed. Let's go back now to President's pledge to revamp the public transit system. Uh, we've heard some nightmare stories, of course, from those using the Kimport Gold Line in uh, Seoul and the metro area, how commuters are packed like sardines during rush hour. Mm-hmm. So how will the new plan help those living in satellite cities? Well, during a groundbreaking ceremony of the Great Train e- Express Line C on Thursday, President Yoon Sung-yeol said the commuting time will be dramatically reduced to around 30 minutes thanks to the new train. He added that new jobs will be created along the GTX route, revitalising the region and providing new housing in areas near train stations, which will help create a hyper-connected metropolitan economic living zone. The first GTX line, Line A, uh, connecting Suso Station in Seoul's Gangnam District to Dongtang Dongtan Station in Hwasong, 45 kilometres south of the capital, is scheduled to open in March. Construction of the GTX B line linking Incheon to Namyangju east of the capital will begin in March for an expected opening in 2030. The GTX C line will pass through Uijongbu and connect Yangju, 29 kilometres north of Seoul to Suwon, just south of the capital, while D, E and F lines will also be newly constructed with routes from Incheon to Wonju, Incheon to Nam- and encircling the capital region. 
and the plan is to expand the system across the country. Indeed, the president also pledged to expand the high-speed train services to other parts of the country, uh, vowing to push for the establishment of an XTX service with a maximum speed of 180 kilometers per hour uh, on four in four other metropolitan areas. To further improve the transportation system, Yun vowed to invest 11 trillion won or 8.2 billion US dollars to speed up delayed projects and establish new bus lanes on expressways while uh, putting additional double-decker electric buses into service. Let's continue on now to some inter-Korea news. Following its launch of multiple cruise missiles on Wednesday, North Korea has claimed that it fired a new and improved weapon. South Korea, on its part, uh, contends that the North fired a rebranded missile upgraded from earlier models. Can you tell us more? Well, the state-run Korean Central News Agency reported that the General Missile Bureau carried out the first te- launch of uh, the uh, Puhasar 331, currently under development the morning before at around 7 a.m. The news agency said that the test firing, uh, which was tracked in a circular trajectory, did not pose a threat to neighboring countries and was of no regional security concern. The report also said that the test firing was a stage of the development pro- uh, process, seeking to constantly update the uh, regime's weapon system, uh, fa- uh, falling under the regular and obligatory uh, uh, operations of the Missile Bureau and affiliated defence institutes. Uh, What did the South Korean military have to say about the launches? Well, the South uh, Joint Chief said in a press briefing that that the missile seems to be an improved version of the previous Hwasal-1 and Hwasal-2 long-range strategic cruise missiles. Uh, Seoul tracked the missiles in real time until they disappeared and experts both at home and in the US are analysing details of the launches while considering the possibility that the North was conducting a mock test of a strategic nuclear warhead detonation in mid-flight. Meanwhile, an analysis firm says North Korea-linked hackers reportedly attacked a record number of cryptocurrency platforms and stole more than $1 billion worth of crypto assets last year. What can you tell us? Well, according to a report from the blockchain analysis firm uh, Chain Analysis on Wednesday, North Korea hacked into global crypto platforms around 20 times last year, the most since related data was first collected in 2016. The report said although the number of attacks rose to 20 last year, the value of stolen assets, about $1 billion in 2023, is lower than the year before when a record $1.7 billion was stolen by hackers linked to Pyongyang. Let's turn to the economy next. The South Korean economy grew 1.4% last year from a year earlier. Can you elaborate? Well, according to the preliminary data by the Bank of Korea Thursday, the country's on-year real gross uh, domestic product growth for 2023 matched the forecast by the central bank and the government, but is the lowest since 2020 when the economy contracted 0.7%. For the fourth quarter of last year, the economy grew 0.6% from the previous quarter and expanded 2.2% from a year earlier. Exports increased 2.7%. 6% on-year in 2023, while imports rose 1% last year. In other news, President Yoon sung yeols approval ratings continue to slide this week. Can you break down the figures for us? Well, according to the National Barometer Survey conducted by Embrain Public, K-State 
uh, K-State research, career research and Hanguk research on 1,001 people nationwide over the age of 18 from Monday to Wednesday found that 31% approved of his performance. Those in favour fell one percentage point from the survey two weeks ago, while his disapproval rating uh, stood still at 61%. Meanwhile, a law punishing employers for workplace accidents will apply to companies with fewer than 50 employees from Saturday after rival political parties failed to agree on a two-year extension to the grace period. Uh, can you update us on this? Well, ruling and opposition parties failed to pass a revised bill on extending the grace period for the inverse enforcement of the Serious Accident Punishment Act by two years for such businesses during a plenary session on Thursday. Under the Act, business owners face a maximum, uh, sorry, a minimum of one-year prison term or a fine of one uh, to one of up to 1 billion won or around 747,000 US dollars upon the death or serious injury of an employee in the workplace. The ruling People Power Party submitted the revision bill last September, citing a lack of preparation by businesses with fewer than 50 workers and a personnel shortage. Uh, President Yun earlier pleaded with the National Assembly to pass the revision to no avail. That is where we're going to have to leave it for our news briefing. Hijin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. We continue on now to Weekly Take, our regular in-depth segments where our panel of expert commentators share with us their take on some of the top political or social issues uh, that they brought for us this week. Let's bring them in now. First, we have joining us on the line, Law Professor Zhu Yigyang from Hongqing University. Professor Zhu, hello. Hello. And we also have standing by on the line, a Philip Professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Professor Kim, hello to you too. Hi. Okay, so Professor Chua, let us start with your topic this week. Professor, what topic or issue have you brought for us this week? A piece of news caught my eye uh, from the international media, which reported that Norway has halted adoptions from four Asian countries, including South Korea, pending an investigation over concerns regarding fabricated documents and irregular adoption processes that obscured or in some cases even distorted the children's biological origins in their home countries. So this actually follows on the heels of two other Scandinavian countries, Denmark and Sweden, uh, which have also halted international adoptions altogether recently. And... One might think, well, these are just three small Scandinavian countries. What difference does it make? But in fact, uh, for South Korea, Denmark and Sweden used to be the third and fourth largest countries to which uh, Korean, South Korean adoptees were actually uh, sent in the past decades. And there is actually also currently being undertaken in Korea by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, an investigation into the allegations of forged documents uh, for adoptees who have been sent abroad. 
whereby children who actually had parents still living were made into orphans. Uh, some children even given new names. Uh, their you know birth details and origins completely distorted and so forth. And these complaints were actually brought by some 270 adoptees, and we believe that there is actually uh, quite a lot more. And so essentially what is happening is that um, the four main Korean adoption agencies that were active in the past are being accused of child trafficking and that the Korean government had been a willing participant in the process when it should have acted in the best interest of the welfare of the child and ensure that such illegal practices did not occur. And so I wanted to uh, discuss this topic right. today. Right. I'm sure many of our listeners will know um, over the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years or so, South Korea has sent a lot of um, uh, babies and ch young children overseas for adoption. I think uh, some numbers say up to 200,000 uh, over the years. Uh, but there have been a lot of concerns about uh, how exactly uh, they be uh, they were uh, put up for adoption, and that is uh, the concerns that Norway, Denmark and Sweden have raised then. Is that correct, uh, Professor? And what was it about that, this that you wanted to raise up today? That is right. So uh, you mentioned the figure 200,000. The official figure actually stands at slightly under 170,000, but uh, many people believe that including unofficial adoptions and also... Uh, children born between Korean mothers and typically U.S. military soldiers, the numbers can be as many as a quarter of a million. Uh, in fact, in the U.S., they have uh, statistics that show that just in Minnesota alone, there are close to 200,000 Korean adoptees living there. So if you, you know, sort of work out the numbers, then we have to imagine that the, or we have to, we can only be led to think that uh, the actual numbers are far greater than the official numbers. So the, the thing is this, uh, the typical sort of, um, you know, image or conception of that we have of these foreign adoptions are either war orphans uh, or small children who have lost their family uh, in the war or children who are given up by their parents, typically, possibly single mothers, because of poverty. And it mostly happened in the 50s and 60s and 70s when still, Korea was still very much a, a, a developing country and really struggling uh, with economic development. But can you actually have a guess when it was that we sent the most number of adoptees abroad? Which year? Oh, you're asking me, Professor. Uh, well, I would imagine it would be possibly around the 70s or 80s uh, that perhaps there were the most number of uh, uh, children sent overseas for adoption. Right. So for me personally, I would have thought that it was, this would have been in, in the uh, late 50s and 60s after the Korean War. But in fact, uh, it was 1985, so three years before the 88 Olympics, when we sent 9,000 children just in that year alone abroad. So we were essentially sending about close to 30 uh, kids right. a day overseas. And 
a lot of these children were not actually babies even. Uh, there were some in their uh, just pre-teens, so, mm. so even like 11, 12 years old. And we, you know, we have this sort of image that right. these children would be given up for adoption because of poverty. But mm. in fact, it was when we were, you know, um, recording two-digit economic growth and uh, we were very much uh, into middle-income country by right. then. And and yet we were still sending something like 3,000 children continuing well into the 90s each year uh, for adoption. Now, there's this international convention called the Hague Adoption Convention, which uh, spells out, you know, how in a situation of inter-country adoptions, the receiving country and the sending country should cooperate together to ensure that uh, right. just sending a child abroad is not the end of things, that mm. they are actually continuing to be looked after in the receiving country. But we are still not a signatory, uh, sorry, we have not ratified the convention yet, even though we have we took a part in drafting the convention. And these uh, adoption agencies in Korea uh, told barefaced lies to parents who thought that they were temporarily giving up their children and would, would be able to claim them back, uh, telling them, oh, you can you know, right. continue to maintain contact with the child, etc., etc. And these children were actually led to believe that they their parents were dead or their parents had, been, had given them up voluntarily when sometimes they were actually kidnapped to be sent abroad. And so... This was a huge business, uh, you know, sending a child abroad, mm. earned these adoption agencies right. $3,000 per child. And this was a practice that was being condoned by the the Korean government because it was actually essentially a foreign currency earner. Sure. And so it's a shameful and painful past history uh, in, in our uh, past chapter in our history. And it's something that the government really should look at to correct the past misdeeds. So, for example, many children are coming back now to try to find their roots, real roots, and try to trace their biological parents. Right. But the adoption agencies are p putting up this wall of silence uh, behind uh, argument that, oh, this is all personal information and uh, personal privacy. We can't release any information to you. So I think this is a clear situation where the right of, of to know of the children supersedes the any right to privacy by the parents right and the government will put in acting law to disclose this kind of information and also look at the uh, the misdeeds of the adoption adopting agencies right there have been many heartbreaking and tragic stories which uh, we featured on our show as well uh, over the years uh, professor kim what do you make of this topic and also the fact that there have been so many uh, unanswered questions by the South Korean government but it seems like now uh, governments from overseas such as Norway, Sweden, Denmark are asking them as well uh, now Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, just like many things in life uh, you know, these things happening in the past uh, involves different memories for uh, the people and so I have a very much mixed feeling about this First off, uh, I agree with the points made here. Uh, while I was studying in the United States during the 1980s, um, I have met and made friends with many of these Korean adoptees there. And I do understand their pain, their suffering, uh, 
Some of them uh, grew up in a wonderful family with wonderful parents, and, and others did not. But all of them had this issue. More, all, almost all of them had issue about, you know, wondering about their origin, where they're coming from, why they had to uh, had been quote unquote abandoned uh, and had to be sent uh, there and so on. So I, I do understand their their suffering, and also I am aware of many cases of abuse. Uh, a terrible uh, individual memories uh, because not all these kids had great uh, parents uh, in the U.S. So I do understand and I've seen their suffering. Having said that, though, however, I do have a clear memory about 1980s, early 80s in Korea here. That was the time, even though it was mentioned that Korea was a middle-income country, but our belief, people's belief altogether at that time was anything overseas was better. Especially these Western countries where these kids were being sent. These are the countries where many of us would die to live, uh, die to go over and live there. Uh, I have clear memory. As the, we were still under dictatorship here in Korea. Even though our economy had uh, improved so much, we had this uh, view about these countries like Sweden and all these Western European countries and the United States being much better place to live. No comparison with right. uh, what we faced at that time in terms of living conditions. So uh, even though there were suffering, abuses, and, and you know, all these terrible things happened, but many of the people who were sending these kids overseas may have, in my own recollection, may have done so with a strong belief that they were doing these things uh, in order to uh, offer better things for these kids rather than, right. uh, you know, growing up. In Korea, without their parents or under uh, difficult conditions, so that part I think I have my own conviction based on my own memory. Right, Professor Cho, uh, I can only give you about a minute, but what do you make of that point that uh, perhaps uh, many of these uh, children would have been better off, and those horror stories about falsified documents and and uh, forcibly sent overseas, those were essentially a very uh, a, a minority of cases. I don't know if it's in minority of cases, and certainly uh, in that decade, people's perception might have been things are better uh, in Western countries. But what the agencies and the government should have done to, was to follow up to ensure that the uh, the children's welfare was actually being looked after. But what really happened was that there were there were allowing proxy adoptions. So mm. you know, adopting parents didn't even have to come and receive the children in person. Uh, this is, you know, I think the, the Korea was the only country that actually allowed that kind of practice in international adoption, uh, not, not even right. domestic adoption. Uh, and also right. the fact that none of these ad adoption agencies actually followed up to look up to see if the children were being looked after properly. Right. Uh, that simply did not happen. So they uh, simply you know, uh, abandoned all their responsibilities, and as did the, did the government. And right, we have gone to this point where uh, the revelations have made other countries uh, like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, as you mentioned, have made them uncomfortable uh, enough for them to halt uh, the practice of bringing in overseas adoptions and ask more questions in the meantime as well. Uh, we have to move on to our second topic, Professor Kim. Let us swiftly move on to you. Uh, what have you chosen for us this week? Today I chose the topic uh, Trump's win in New Hampshire this past uh, Tuesday. Uh, Trump's victory over Nikki Haley, 
And uh, this came in with uh, Trump winning 54% of the votes as compared to Nikki Haley winning 43% of the votes. Uh, this is like close to 10% of difference. Uh, different people will say different things about this result, but it compares to the Iowa caucus that happened about a week before then, Trump winning 51%, Nikki Haley winning only 21%. So some people could say Nikki Haley had caught up with Trump big time, but the, the fact is uh, Trump had a win in both Iowa and New Hampshire, New Hampshire this time, and a lot of people seem to see Trump in a, a proper uh, highway uh, road taking him to the, the final victory winning his uh, party nomination. Right. So even though Haley has promised uh, to continue fighting even after losing to Trump in New Hampshire, it does seem inevitable now that Trump is the presidential nominee for the Republican Party once again. Uh, right, Professor Kim? Well, the thing is, uh, you know, striking statistics. That is, in the history, there was a no Republican uh, nominee that lost both Iowa and New Hampshire and became uh, you know, Republican Party nominee in the past, meaning that uh, Nick Haley didn't win in Iowa, didn't win New Hampshire, and there's no precedent uh, for cases like her winning the final ticket. So that's a really, really desperate, uh, devastating statistics on the side of uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, the thing is, however, on the other side, uh, this time some... People, uh, you know, several columnists at New York Times and so on have raised the point that uh, this time is very different from, for example, 2016 presidential campaign, two presidential ter terms ago when, um, you know, Hillary Clinton ran against uh, Donald Trump. At that time, uh, including most of the journalists and observers and so on, despite the, the, some of the poll numbers, and actually poll numbers did not predict Trump's win, and Trump's win itself was a real surprise, uh, despite many different kind of predictions. But this time, Trump is on this kind of, uh, you know, winning spree at this time. And what that means is there will be a strong headwind. That is, the, the pro-Democrats and, the, you know, people who support the Democratic Party will be mobilized, and they'll come to the polls and so on. And actually, Clinton, uh, the Donald Trump may actually run into a strong opposition from the opposite side when he runs for the, the national uh, election. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, there are two very divided uh, perspectives on this. Right. And Professor Kim, if I can stick with you, what do you make of uh, this situation then, where Trump seems to be uh, on the path to winning the uh, Republican Party nomination, and he does there is a, a very good chance that he could return to the White House as well. And what could that mean for South Korea as well? Well, uh, several different things, and may, maybe you can spend um, hours on this, but uh, if we can go through some of the uh, priority list, uh, perhaps issues. So first and foremost, what we have in our mind is defending South Korea, uh, South Korea's national defense. And there we are aware and we remember the fact that Donald Trump asked for more than five times increase of what South Korea pays for uh, keeping U.S. troops uh, inside uh, in South Korea. 
and Donald Trump seriously, seriously pushed the card of pulling U.S. troops out of South Korea if South Korea continues to refuse to go along with his, his uh, request to increase Korea's payment more than five times. So uh, that's a very painful memory, and the question of how South Korea will be uh, defended is a big question people have in mind. Second one in the list would be, what about uh, North Korea's nuclear um, you know, weapons? And what about Kim Jong-un? Uh, many people uh, here are speculating at this point, uh, what kind of deal-making would uh, Donald Trump be engaged in that case? And uh, uh, what kind of uh, instability will we see if Donald Trump bypasses uh, Seoul and goes right directly right to Kim Jong-un and uh, make a deal. And Kim Jong-un uh, will be very much willing to make a deal directly with Donald Trump, uh, setting aside Seoul here. So that's going to be a real challenge for South Korea uh, as well. On the trade and industry side, um, Donald Trump is talking about introducing 10% tariffs uh, on all imports into the United States. So that's a major uh, kind of trade war-like situation all around the world, and uh, it can bring back us our memory, uh, terrible memories of what happened during the uh, before the Great Depression at the beginning of uh, 20th century. Uh, you know, all these trade wars and rise of the tariffs and, and then the world economy going tailspin. So that's also very much, uh, you know, what we have in our minds looking at the possibility of Donald Trump's return to the White House. Uh, under Biden, the uh, United States government has been asking Korean companies to build factories inside the United States. And what will that mean? Will there be greater pressure on this side? Uh, probably so. And how do we deal with that situation going forward? Uh, that's going to be another uh, challenge. Next one will be China. Uh, we do understand, if anything, I mean, Trump is in pretty positive, relatively speaking, positive terms with, um, you know, Putin, for instance, in Moscow. But with China, uh, we know Trump will be pushing very hard, uh, hard maintaining harsh situation in, with China. What does that mean uh, for Korea? How should Korea position itself there? Uh, that's going to be a very uh, interesting situation. Right at this point, under Biden government, with Biden government, uh, we've been... Uh, hearing the receiving the calls to uh, take a side with the United States and Japan together and join the multilateral uh, lining up in a way uh, opposing China. That was pretty simple. But when Trump comes into office, the whole thing may be unsettled and we'll have to find different ways of adjusting Trump's anti-China policies. So that's once again another challenge. Lastly, I'm sure there will be others as well, but lastly on my list, uh, overall, the change against uh, change towards or challenge against the, the world order altogether, the multilateralism, the post-war world order that, that the free world has been building based on cooperation and international organizations such as United Nations, WTO, uh, you know, all these different kind of institutions. What are we going to do uh, with them? And how are we going to uh, adjust ourselves? Donald Trump has been, uh, you know, making his point, for, in, for instance, during his 
four-year term in the office. Every time he showed up at UN, mm. you know, assembly speech in right. the fall time, and he was making the points that um, so-called U.S. allies, you're on your own and uh, make your right. own country great because uh, America, United States, is going to make um, our country great. Uh, we are on our own. So basically. Uh, dismantling and then dismissing the idea of uh, multilateral cooperation. So that will be last challenge for Korea to deal with for the next four years if Trump is, in fact, elected and comes back to the White House. Well, definitely a lot of things for Korea to consider. Uh, We appreciate you laying that out for us. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we are out of time. Uh, Professor Kim, Professor Cho, thank you for your analysis as always. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index inched up 0.65 points or 0.03% on Thursday to close the day at 2,470.34. The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, shedding 12.47 points or 1.49% to close at 823.74. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 1.21 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,335.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, jang Okay, so what do you have for us first? Authorities found that the amount of bills and coins that went to waste in Korea last year totaled a staggering 3.9 trillion won, or around $2.9 billion. These are based on figures released by the Bank of Korea on Thursday. $2.9 billion dollars in just 2023 alone. That's a staggering figure. Can you try and put that into context for us? What do you mean uh, by cash that went to waste? Well, we're talking about notes and coins that were damaged and discarded. As for the notes alone, if you stack them on top of each other, the height would be more than 250 times higher than the tallest building in the nation, Lotte World Tower, which is around 555 <laughs> meters tall. And it will also be 16 times higher than Mount Everest, which is about 8,800 meters above sea level. Well, that's quite a, a bizarre comparison, but I guess it does uh, perhaps show the scale of the issue. So uh, what were some of the key causes of the damage? One major cause is apparently fire with some people, mostly seniors, choosing to stash their cash at home. They don't believe banks. When there are major fires that burn down residential complexes, the money gets severely damaged in the process. There are also weird instances when some people choose to hide their savings by burying it underground. And then there are the types of wishing wells, like ponds near popular temples. One individual in Gwangju managed to convert the coins dug up from one such places to make more than 3 million won. So imagine the amount that would have gone to waste if left alone. Mm, Indeed. Uh, Damaged or tainted currency can be exchanged, though, for usable ones, right? Meaning that more money was printed out. Right, and printing more money costs money. Figures show for notes, more than 480 million copies were damaged and had to be replaced. That's 70 million copies more than the previous year. The average expected lifespan of a banknote is 15 years, and more than 100 billion won is used annually on average during that span just to print new notes. The Bank of Korea is looking at innovative ways to 
reuse the damaged currencies instead of just discarding them, such as donating them to artists that specialize in using such materials for their works. While a lot of people, especially younger people, are going cashless, it seems there are still many who do keep cash in Korea. But still, it's quite a startling amount of money that is uh, damaged or wasted every year in Korea. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Korean composer Jin Eun-suk won the Ernst von Siemens Award at the Ernst von Siemens Music Foundation and the Bavarian Academy of Fine Arts announced on Thursday that Jin has been chosen as this year's winner, along with the award she earns 250,000 euros, that's some 271,000 US dollars in prize money. Yes, I understand that this is a great honour, with some dubbing the German award the Nobel Prize in classical music. Yes, what's more incredible is the 62-year-old becomes the first Asian artist to win this award. Past winners include legendary names including uh, Herbert von Karajan and uh, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, Winning the award is considered extremely difficult, as best in various expertise, including composers, conductors, singers, and more in the classical music realm, are reviewed for their accomplishments, and there can only be one winner. Uh, China has been working, Jin rather, Jin has been working in Germany for many years, and she said it is especially meaningful to be receiving that honor in the place she feels is her home away from home. Yes, can you tell us more about this uh, composer who, as you've mentioned, has been very active in Germany? Well, after graduating from Seoul National University, Jin furthered her studies in Hamburg School of Music and then garnered global recognition by winning the Grawmeyer Award for Music Comp- Composition in 2004. She went on to nab numerous accolades, with the latest being the Leonie Sonning Music Prize in 2021. And the Korean has served as composer for numerous world-class orchestras, including the Seoul Philharmonic Orchestra and the British Philharmonic. She has been serving as artistic director of the Tongyang International Music Festival since 2022. Well, we've gotten used to hearing about young Korean musicians who've been winning awards all over the world in recent years, but it's great to hear of a veteran artist being recognised like this as well. Let's continue on to our last story. What else do you have for us today? The 2024 Angoulême International Comics Festival is now on. It is viewed by many as the equivalent of what Cannes is to film. The 51st edition of the International Comics Festival kicks off on Thursday in the French city of Angoulême, and the Korean works have been selected in the list of nominees for the official selection category. Yes, this is an event of global scale, the best in the business from around the world, competing against one another to earn deserving recognition. Yes, every year around 6,000 artists and 200,000 visitors gather for the four-day event. This year's winners will be announced during the award ceremony held on Saturday. One of the standout nominations is Mom's My Ma Yongshin. It features a mother in her 50s struggling to survive in a tough work environment, which happens to be a nightclub, where she gets into fights with her co-workers, the cleaners and the waiters, and not to mention some workplace romance as well. Yes, Korea's comic book industry is firmly establishing itself as a global powerhouse, so it's uh, no surprise, really, that we're seeing Korean artists in the shortlist of candidates as well. That's right. Uh, she is not alone. We have Hanbok by Sophie Dark. Uh, that's another hot favorite, written by a Korean ad- adoptee who grew up in France. It's about a personal journey in Korea in search of her fruits. Uh, children's comic books are also a category that features a host of talented names, including Park Yun-sun with her work published in France, uh, titled La Coyable Mademoiselle Bang, loosely translates into Incredible Madame Bang. Uh, there hasn't been a Korean winner of the Angoulême Award since 2017, when Korean writer Anko won it for her work title, Bad Friends. 
Right, but we'll see how Korean artists fare this year as well. And that's all the time we have for today's career trending. And actually, it's our last career trending. We'll have uh, more on that at the end of the show. But yes, Daniel, that's it for us here on this segment. Thank you once again. But uh, we'll see you again soon. As always, thanks for having me. I'll see you again soon. Continue on now to Explore Korea, our weekly segment where we look to discover some of Korea's cultural, historical and travel highlights with the help of our special contributors or explorers. This week we have our arts explorer with us, Anjeo. Joe, hello. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much. It's great to see you too, Joe. Okay, so what are we talking about this week? All right, so today we're going to talk about an artist who I've had in mind as an Explore Korea topic for quite some time. Now, the two main reasons why I've decided that today would be an ideal day to introduce him to our listeners are, A, because his latest solo exhibition is currently running at a prestigious art museum here in Seoul, and B, because one of the two most significant traditional Korean holidays, Seollal, yes, the Lunar New Year, is right around the corner, which I believe would be a fantastic time to enjoy and celebrate the craft of this particular artist. Mm. And speaking of the new year, after its rather significant 2023 campaign, I have a very good feeling that 2024 could be the year he wins considerable global acclaim. Hence, for all the reasons I've shared so far, he deserves to be discussed on a show like ours as much as anyone. Chang'o, today's artist is the one and only Lee Jong-bae. Okay, so artist Lee Jong-bae, what more can you tell us about him? Okay, so he was born in 1974, born and raised here in Seoul. Uh, He currently lives and works in the beautiful city of Paju in Gyeonggi province. And a few tips that I want to share with our listeners regarding Paju... All you have to do is do an online search on this wonderful place. Uh, The nature is fantastic. They have many, many, many culture and art venues as well. And let's not forget that it's Paju where Imjinggak is, right? Where so many people, both Korean and foreign, do their DMZ tour. And this is something that I highly, highly recommend for a number of different reasons. First of all, it's very educational. Second, it's very original as well. You cannot have this kind of experience anywhere else. I mean, think about it. If you go, like, say, for example, Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, that's uh, post-unification, right? And the wall has been torn down. Here in Korea... Not so much, at least not yet. Right. So for you get a the, glimpse of North Korea. Exactly. And plus, considering the tension right now going on, I think, you know, for a number of all those different factors, it's just a really, really, really significant experience. I hope anyone who's interested does give it a try. But let's come back to Lee Jong-bae. Uh, Lee Jong-bae has an interesting academic background. He received both his bachelor's and master's degrees from the Department of Oriental Painting at Hongik University. And like what, for the 800th time, whose College of Fine Art is, as I (laughs) so often say, one of the top three art colleges here in Korea. Uh, He's completed the coursework for his doctorate at the same school as well. And this is where people who already know him and his craft may scratch their heads a little bit. 
because many consider him a sculptor more than a painter. I say we get back to this just a bit later. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, the exhibitions part of his CV is highly decorated as well. Uh, 2024 is the 20th year of his exhibiting career. His works have been shown at some of the most prestigious galleries here in Korea, both public and private, including the Seoul Museum of Art, PB Gallery, Gallery Hyundai, and the Art Museum we're going to talk about in more detail nearing the end of the segment. Okay, so he's clearly highly acclaimed with a wealth of experience. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about his craft? You said... Many will consider him a sculptor, but that's not what he studied. That's right. So let's get back to that point right now, right? Now, both undergraduate and graduate programs and graduate programs in Oriental painting, and many years later, many celebrate him as one of Korea's best established sculptors. Now, anybody who enjoys the arts know that a shift of artistic identity from one field to another or pursuing two or more fields simultaneously happens all the time, right? Like, for example, three weeks ago, we talked about Kim Byung-ho, the printmaker turned sculptor. Then there's Bob Dylan, the legendary musician who's also a talented painter and filmmaker and happens to be a Nobel Prize laureate <laughs> in literature as well. Oh, and what about Keanu Reeves? The movie star who's now also a rock star, right? The list goes right. on and okay. on and on. Sure. It's not that much of a long list when it comes to extremely talented people, uh, artists who are that much versatile. But the reason why I'm mentioning all these names is because, A, you can put Lee Jong-bae in this category of versatility as well. As a matter of fact, his body of work does include painting, sculpture, photography, video, and installation. Mm. Or B, you can also say No. I mean, I get what you're saying, but he can still just simply be considered an oriental painter, especially his works in the recent years. And this is because when it comes to the latest craft of Lee Jong-bae, the very craft he's best known for, from a distance they may look like sculptures, and I have little problem with anyone who considers him predominantly a sculptor, but if you get closer and pay more attention to all the details... You can also realize that the paint on a healthy number of his works and the brushwork that got the paint on them play a colossal role in the overall artistry. Right, I see. Can you give some then examples about what you're talking about? Absolutely. A good example is Sunlight Sky. This is a PC created in 2022. Now, from afar, it may look like a rectangular minimalist sculpture painted in... Sky blue. However, once you take a few steps closer, you can see how it's accompanied by a light tone of yellow from the most subtle touches of his brush, reminding us of a clear sky with a not-too-shiny but just bright enough glimmer of sunlight. Now, this work is one of the many which can support the opinion that he's more of a painter than a sculptor, that while the medium he paints on comes in a variety of shapes, it's the brushwork that plays a greater role in governing our appreciation. Now, if anyone asks me, I'd simply say that both shape and paint matter, and that deciding which genre he belongs to may not be too important. That all that matters is that the way he infuses painting into sculpture, or vice versa, is highly creative, and how he does so to express and discuss his subject matter is highly original. And on that note, and I know what I'm about to say may raise a few eyebrows, but 
his works, his recent works, actually remind you a little bit of the sculptures of Keith Haring. Okay. And the reason why is because whenever you see the quote-unquote sculptures of Keith Haring, it kind of gives you the feeling that, wait a second, are those 3D paintings or drawings of his? Mm. If you know what I mean, right? Okay. But by doing so, he gives that extra third-dimensional touch, and it becomes more of a public thing. You can enjoy the artwork from so many different angles, obviously. And I think when it comes to Yi Jongbae, just in that sense, you can make that kind of an interesting comparison. Right, so he's someone who's not easily defined or confined, shall we say, to mm. one type of uh, art form. How does this translate to his latest exhibition then? Can you tell us more about that? And which of his works, which types of works can we find there? Absolutely. So the title of the show is Rub, Jam, and Glimmer. The venue is the Arario Museum. Now, there are two Arario Museums, one in Jeju Island, the other one here in Seoul. We're talking about the one here in Seoul, and it's actually the full name is called Arario Museum in Space. Uh, Rub, Jam, Glimmer is just a fantastic exhibition. The combination of Lee jong works and the beautiful architecture of the museum goes so well together. Uh, the work I mentioned earlier, some Night Sky is also one of the works uh, exhibited at this show. Um, the show runs all the way through April 21st. For more, ex- ex- uh, I'm sorry, April 21st, that's right. Uh, for more uh, information, please visit aradiomuseum.org. Aradio is spelled A R A R I O. And last but not least, a well curated selection from the museum's collection is on view as well, including works of the world's most celebrated artists, as a matter of fact, Keith Haring. Interesting. And the work you mentioned earlier, Sunlight Sky, Mm -hmm. that's uh, on display as part of this exhibition as well. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we're going to have to end it there, but it's been a fantastic... Uh, fascinating discussion as always. We've been talking about the artist Yi Jung-bae and his latest exhibition, Rub, Jam and Glimmer at the Aradio Museum in Seoul. That's all for Explore Career this week. Joe, thank you once again for that recommendation and we'll see you next time. Lovely. And that's our show today. A couple of announcements before we go, though. First, tomorrow we'll be taking a break. Instead, we'll be airing a repeat of a special called Bibimbap to Clash and to Harmonize. So we hope you enjoy that. And then on Monday, Career 24 will be returning with a revamped format for the first time since we launched in 2017. As ever, we'll continue to bring you the latest updates and analysis of the key stories from Korea, but we'll be looking to expand the depth and width of our news coverage of Korea and the world as well now. We hope you'll join us for that as we embark on this new chapter for the show. Till then, we hope you have a great week. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>